Amen. All right, so Acts 13. Two weeks ago in Acts 13, we, we were talking about the difference between calling and sending. Between calling and sending. Who can tell me the difference between calling and sending? Who does it? God does the calling. Okay, yeah, that's good. God does always... God always does the calling. We see this, a great example of this in thir- chapter 13, chapter 2, while the leaders of the church were there. They, in cha- I'm sorry, 13 verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So here we have the calling of the Holy Spirit But then we don't know how long after we see verse three, it says, then when they had fasted and prayed and that laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So we have the calling of the Holy Spirit, the inner calling, which says the Lord is calling and setting me apart for this work. And then we see the outward confirmation of that calling of the people and the leaders of the church and the brothers and sisters in the fellowship that are saying yes and they're joining together because we all share that same spirit. They lay hands on them, and then being sent out, verse 4, by the Holy Spirit, they went out. And this is Paul's first missionary journey. Now, who has their map? I do. You do? All right. Very cool. So this is the map, if you guys would like to look at one. Well, this is the, I drew this. Yeah, I copied it in color, but Yeah. So this is, the, this is Paul's first missionary journey. Um, there's two churches of Antioch. We're going to see that today. But the main Christian church, the main Christian fellowship at this time was in Antioch, Antioch, Syria, which is over here. That was pretty much the, um, the, 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 the main hub other than Jerusalem. And so when they sent them out, they went to Seleucia, which is a port, and they went over here to Cyprus, where Barnabas is from, and they, they went through the whole land of Cyprus, and they met this magician, and Paul rebuked them for trying to lead people astray, and John Mark bailed out on him. He said, this is a little bit too serious for me. I'm not sure if I'm really called and sent. Maybe he said that back in, um, uh, I would say, down in uh, verse 13. So after that, we now see Paul and his companions, verse 13, they go out from Paphos and they come to Perga and Pamphylia, which is across the Mediterranean Sea north, right up this, this little orange spot right there. And so that's like sort of considered a part of Galatia, but it's like right down here at the bottom. And so they go to, um, to this place here and that's when John Mark leaves them. And then from there, they go up here to Pisidian Antioch. Okay, that's where we're going to talk about today. This, they're sort of like in the between Galatia and Asia. And the cool thing about this is when you look at the book of Revelation, here are all the churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. When, Paul, when John writes the letter to the seven churches, they're all right in this region. You could pick them out if you would like to do that. So if you want a copy of that, you can let me know and I'll give you one. So Paul, he goes into the synagogue. Why do you think he went into the synagogue? Who remembers that? Why did Paul go to the synagogue and not, I don't know, down to the boardwalk? 
or down to the marketplace, although he has gone to the market, he will go to the marketplace eventually. Why is he going to the synagogue? Anybody have a, anybody want to take a gander, guess? They have the meeting on the Sabbath day. What is Paul, uh, what, what makes Paul unique in that he feels he could be productive in a synagogue? He's trained as a Pharisee. He's, he, is, he is the poster boy for Judaism. He is a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel. And anytime a Pharisee, not just a Jewish person, but a Pharisee walks into a synagogue, they show honor to that person if they're a visitor by giving them an opportunity, if they want, to stand up and speak. And so Paul is using his affinity as a Pharisee, as a Jewish person. He's being logical and practical. God likes us to do that, sometimes at least. And he's saying, let's go to the synagogues. This is what I know. This is where I'm going to go. And I am going to be able to communicate with these people, but not only on their territory, but I'm going to be able to communicate using their language. And I don't just mean the Hebrew language, but what do people in the synagogue know really well? The Old Testament. <clears throat> and so when you see in the Bible, the scriptures, the word scriptures, for instance, they, you know, they opened up the, you know, the, the, the book of the law. We know that's the book of the law. But like when you get to like um, Acts 17, where the Bereans searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, after Paul was teaching them, they're not taking out their pocket New Testament, right? Or they're not opening up a Bible. They're searching the scrolls of the Old Testament. And that to me is really, really neat because... Paul, right now, in my opinion, this is one of the best gospel messages in all, the, in all the New Testament, what he's about to preach. He hits all the hot spots. But if somebody were to ask you right now, share the gospel with me, what would you say? You would, you would probably, depending on your style or how you would, what situation you're in, is you would go and you would take them maybe to the Gospel of John or to the Book of Romans and talk about sin, talk about you know uh, being born again, how Jesus paid for our sin, the death on the cross. There's a lot of different places that you would take them. But what if I said to you right now, preach the Gospel to me, but only use the Old Testament? How many of you could do that? How many of you would like to try to share the Gospel with me right now using the Old Testament only? Pretty, it's pretty easy, right? What's the first thing you would go to? The Genesis, the fall. Go to the fall, okay. Then you, you still stay in Genesis and talk about the promise of seed through the woman. You can still stay there and have the Lord cover Adam and Eve with the animal, you know, that covering. Yep. Good leverage off of the... Yep, the covering because they sinned. Against God, the fall of mankind, the sacrifice that God even made in the garden, to, because we know that to, to foreshadow that only through the spilling of blood is there the remission of sins. That brings you to Leviticus. Yeah. It says 
Yeah. We can go to Leviticus from there. Where, 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 where else would you go? Yep. So you go to Samuel, first Samuel, second Samuel, the Psalms, Isaiah 52 and 53. Anyone else? I challenge you guys to, to take. No, right. But I challenge you guys to go through the Old Testament and I promise you guys that you can go through every book of the Old Testament and preach the gospel. Yeah. They do it the, the trot to, through the Tanakh. Something, it's called that way. Yeah, right, the Old Testament Tanakh. Yeah, yep. but, and, but they're specific, just like the Roman road. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, That's that pretty cool. It takes you verse to verse yeah. throughout the, just the Old Testament. Cool. See, that's what Paul's doing right here. <clears throat> Paul is speaking to people that know the Old Testament, though. So. If you spoke to someone that know, knew the Old Testament, it's really a lot easier to preach the gospel to them. Um, but you still need to know the Old Testament. And if you talk to somebody who doesn't have any idea about Ju- Judaism or, or the Old Testament or anything, you can still take them through and, and you can still explain to them, like Claudia said, the fall. And you could just pick and choose where you would want to go. You can go to Isaiah, like you said, and those types of things are the you know the word of God, where it says is um, is, is sharper than any two edged sword. Hebrews four twelve, and Second Timothy three sixteen. It's profit, profitable for for teaching, for rebuke, and for uh, exhortation and training in righteousness. They're talking about the Old Testament. Now I'm not saying the New Testament isn't that too. It is, but when they wrote that, they were talking about the Old Testament. Now we know the New Testament also is grafted into that because once the New Testament is complete, we, we know it's also the word of God and those things also apply to it. Um, but the Old Testament is, is, is just as powerful as the New Testament. There's no difference in it. A lot of times there's a trend in Christianity to sort of look back at the Old Testament as sort of like, you know, the, you know, the chips and dip, you know, and the New Testament is not even the gospel is really exonerated of the gospels are exonerated as much as Paul's writings. You know, it's like, it's almost as if Paul wrote and then Jesus came after that to fulfill what Paul wrote, but it's all equal. It's all the word of God. And so Paul starts out. If you look at verse 16, he introduces himself after standing up, he addresses the men of Israel and he starts talking about the first thing he talks about is, is in, in my opinion, is really profound here, um, especially if you want to properly interpret the New Testament, you really need to get this next point. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Now, he's talking about 450 years from the time 
Jacob and Joseph and everybody moved into Israel to the time they came out of Israel, had the conquest into, into Cain and into the promised land. That was about until the books of Judges came and Samuel. That was about 450 years. And why is this so important and so critical? Why did, first of all, do you, and this is all the same answer. It's all connected here. Why did Paul start with this? Why did he not start with Adam and Eve? Um, why did he not start with Leviticus or and all that? Why did he start with the story of the deliverance from Egypt? Who can tell me that? Nope, nope, that's not it. Because well, that's his audience, is the Israelites. Yeah, okay. That's their form. Yeah, that, that's their what? How they're kind of, that's how they became a nation. Right, right. It's, it's, like, it's like saying that it's, it's not even a really equal analogy because the influence of the story of Egypt over the people of Israel at the time of Christ makes the influence of the Revolutionary War to America pale in comparison. And we think about America, and we think of stars and stripes, and we think of, you know, the Constitution, and we think of, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence, and we celebrate it every year. The Israelites celebrated and anticipated this recurring, this repeat of what happened in Egypt at the time they were waiting for the Messiah. That was their backdrop. It was part of their story. It's part of their narrative. It's part of <clears throat> why they were putting up with all the tyrannical uh, things uh, that all these other nations would do to them through Babylon, through the exiles, through, if you look throughout uh, the Psalms, if you look throughout the minor prophets and the major prophets as well, it's all about God will yet deliver us once again, like he did in Egypt, right? Even, even God's, when, in, in, when God is speaking in the scriptures, this is God's most favorite topic to go to when he's rebuking the people of Israel. Because right after he, rebu- he rebukes them throughout the prophets, like in Jeremiah and, I, and in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 45 through 65 or 66, we see this recurring theme of, as I delivered you from Israel, or as I delivered you from Egypt. And he'll say, I'll do it again. And then he would rebuke them and say, you know, don't you remember being in bondage? You know, is that what you want to do again? You know, is that where you want to go again? You know, so... This backdrop has to be there when we interpret the New Testament because the promises, when they're talked about in the Old Testament, the promises of deliverance are mirroring that of what happened in Egypt, but they're reflecting into the person of Christ. He is that ultimate deliverance from Egypt. He is that recurring or that, re, that redo, but in a much, obviously, in a much bigger way. It says, and he says it here in verse 20, after these things, this is Paul preaching now. Again, when you read these sermons, this isn't a word for word, like sermon script, sermon notes. These are the highlights that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. This is maybe not all Paul preached that day, but this is what we are, get, we are, we are getting from this. So 
They asked for a king after Samuel, verse 21. God gave them Saul, and he, he goes on down. He raised up David to be their king, whom he also testified and said, I found David the son of Jesse after um, my own heart. He will do my will. And now here, look at verse 23. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, the Lord is salvation. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he's talking about the promise. So the backdrop is Egypt, the bondage, and the deliverance, and the promise is that somebody is going to come. God himself, with his own arm, is going to come and deliver you again by installing a king that will defeat all of your enemies and rightfully put Israel in its place as the light of the world. And so that's the backdrop that they're thinking about. And again, God was, the, he, the, the Bible says, the Lord is the Lord of war, okay? They're thinking a militant takeover is going to happen. But Paul is saying here, now, now look, the son of Jesse, I'm sorry, the son of David, this promise, this new king is Jesus here. He's, he's, this is who I'm talking about. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, he brought Jesus. But then he throws in there John the Baptist. Why does he do that? After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So let's stop here for a second. Why does Paul say John? John's the most com- one of the most common names during that time. Almost as, as common as Jesus. Jesus was a very common name. Usually what they would say is they would say your name and then where you're from to, or if, whose son you were to, to differentiate actually who you're talking about. John is even obviously a very common name for us today. Right? But you know, if I tell you right now, Joe just passed a mandate, you'll know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the President of the United States, right? Because it's the language that we're used to now because he's in, in office and people associate that. When he says the word John, he doesn't say John the Baptist. He's saying the word John for a very specific reason, only John for a very specific reason, and that's because everybody, everybody knew and ev- all the Jewish people knew and they respected John the Baptist. They respected him well. Now, why, why did they respect John the Baptist, do you think? Just why do you think they wouldn't say, John the Baptist, he was with that Jesus guy, you know? He was a martyr. He was a martyr. That's very good. Wasn't thinking that. But yeah, he got martyred. Who did Jesus say John the Baptist was? He said it was Elijah. But he also referred to John the Baptist as a what? He was a prophet, right? Now, he, when Jesus talks about the prophets, he says, and he even says, like, he goes, there's no one greater, or he says, the least in the kingdom is greater than John, is John, greater than John the Baptist. Remember he said that? 
the least of, of, of the person in the kingdom of God that's being launched in Christ is greater than John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist part of the kingdom that, was, that Jesus launched? Theologically, what do you think? Of course. You think he was? there was this like movement that John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so there is some emphasis in John, like that kind of puts down John the Baptist all the time, not in general, but like in comparison to, to Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. He's constantly like, he makes sure people understand that he is not the Messiah that Jesus is. Right. So I don't know, but could that be part of the like, hey, he's, he's not the one, but... He's the one that's announcing the one. Yes. Read. Do you have, do you have Acts 13 open? Yeah. Read verse 25. Uh, as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Right. So that's exactly what you're saying. That's why the writer Luke put that in here too. That's that part. Because every time John is mentioned, you always see him as someone who is trying to get people away from himself. You know, he, he's, he's trying to get away, get away from me, not away from me, but don't worship me. I'm just pointing the way. And so what I'm getting to, and Rich, yes, you may be, kingdom-wise, he is part of the kingdom of God, um, positionally. But historically, he, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament before the kingdom was launched. He was pointing the way. And where did we read about? So what I'm trying to say is that the the Jewish people respected John the Baptist as a prophet, as a real prophet. Because he was rumored to be living uh, up with the Asenis, who was a Jewish sect that were super, super spiritual, super strict, almost like an Amish version, like out in the mountains is where they live. But they weren't just, you know, I know a lot of times Amish people... Uh, have the um, reputation of, not, of being dead religion, right? I'm sure not all of them are. I'm sure some of them love the Lord, whatever, beside the point. The Essenes were not like that. They were, they were very strict. Um, they, were, they prayed all day. They read the scriptures. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found from them. They are the ones that preserved it. <clears throat> and so John the Baptist was, is, is rumored to have been part of them, and he came out from that mountain refuge and went to the Jordan and started baptizing in that water right where the Israelites came in through the promised land, right where the Joshua said, put 12 stones down. So remember, this is where we crossed. And John baptized, not necessarily right at that spot, but he baptized there, identifying with the people of Israel. Remember when John said, you, God can raise up uh, children of Abraham from these stones? So he's not just talking about random stones laying around. He's implying the stones of Joshua, the 12 tribes of Israel. You think because you're descending of the 12 tribes of Israel, huh, that's not the, that's, that doesn't matter. God can raise up from these stones the true Israel, if that's what he wants to do. So John was a, was a, was a fiery prophet who the Jewish people respected, who announced the kingdom of God coming, that announced 
the fact that the Messiah came and launched that kingdom like he said, like God promised he would. But on top of everything that I just said, why else would they recognize and respect John as it relates to believing that Jesus is truly the Messiah? What else, what, uh, what other, let's, I'll give you a little bit more. I may give it away, but what other um, scriptures in the Old Testament may a Jewish person think back to when they think about John the Baptist? Does anybody know? Let's see if I can pull it up on the fly. Remember, the old Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi, by the way. Malachi chapter 4, the very last verse in the Old Testament. Very last verse. I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And we also hear too about the forerunner that my messenger will come and he will pave the way for the Messiah. So Paul is referencing this. It's very important that that you see this because he's not just randomly saying, oh yeah, John the Baptist you know, said that was it. No, like when they hear about John, there was rumors that was he the Messiah, you know, all this other stuff. And so they're saying, no, this is a double, uh, a double whammy here. Not only was John, as Jesus said, coming as the prophet Elijah, but he's also what the Old Testament predicted and that what you were waiting for was this messenger. And here he was, this messenger, Jesus said it was him, Paul's saying it to him, he is the one that came to bring a warning to the people of Israel before the Messiah would come. That warning was, your hearts are hard, you need to repent, and you need to trust in the one that's going to come. So John gave a baptism of repentance. He basically said, look, if you're agreeing with me that you want to repent and you're ready and open for God to do some work here, then get baptized. And that's what the people of Israel did in droves. And that's why when right after that, Jesus came and, and he was baptized and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. So he is the forerunner. And so now we go from all of that, Paul sort of goes backwards and starts to talk about Abraham, but he just mentions them. He refers to them out of, I, I believe, you know, trying to uh, pay them some respect here. Bro- brethren, sons of Abraham's family. Again, why is that important? Abraham's family. How will that connect the dots to Jesus? What was, what was the promise to Abraham? That his seed will bless the, the world. The whole world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. The whole world. Now that would only come by Israel being available to the whole world. And that's what Israel's thinking. The whole world's going to be blessed through Abraham's seed because Israel's going to rule the whole world in, when, when, when that king is, is put on the throne. But we know that's not exa- how it happened. 
We know how it happened. Jesus became and embodied Israel. What they failed to do, Jesus accomplished on the cross. So now sin is forgiven, evil is broken, powers are ultimately defeated. Now the Holy Spirit can come and reign throughout the entire dominion that was under lockdown by Satan. That curse is broke. Now Jesus dies on the cross, we get the Holy Spirit, and instead of people coming to the temple to worship God, now the temples are going out to the world and telling people about God. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, this reference to Abraham. These are, this is not like every single person going connecting these dots, but this is the theology behind this. And this is what I believe the Holy Spirit want, wanted them to see and wants us to see. He said, those uh, among you who fear God to us, the message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him <clears throat> nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. He's doing it right there. <clears throat> Fulfilled these same scriptures and prophets, I added that in, by condemning him, Jesus. So now Paul is starting to shift. See, a lot of us go right to this when we preach the gospel. We go right to sin. You know, right to sin. You're a sinner, you need to be saved. And it's not like there's not anything necessarily wrong with that, depending on the situation. And, um, and even our creeds. Like, I know Chris went through the Apostles' Creed last week. Um, and, you know, we have the Nicene Creed and we have all these creeds but one of the major things that I believe is missing from the creeds is the whole entire backdrop of Israel and the kingdom of God. We only see very little mentions of it. It's like suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, he was born of a virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, the whole life of Jesus, right? But the scriptures, when we look at the scriptures, we see this backdrop of Israel. And so don't be afraid when you share the gospel to start with Israel, to start with the story of creation, to lay down that groundwork, right? And then we get, and then he starts to get to sin. <clears throat> they found, in verse 28, and though they found no ground for putting them to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. <clears throat> and when they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. And he goes on about the scriptures that prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You will not allow your holy one to see decay. Jesus, David's not writing going, Lord, you're never going to let me die. And when I do die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's not what David was thinking. How do we know that? It says it right here. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid among his fathers and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised, Jesus, did not decay. So he's using the scriptures of the Old Testament 
to prove the resurrection. Now, in my, in my opinion, again, I'm not here to give my opinions, but in my opinion, the resurrection is one of the, is one of the obviously one of the major doctrines of our faith, but the resurrection is, I believe, preached like this, and going to heaven is preached like this, right? Isn't that what we all hear, right? Our ultimate goal is heaven. But we never see that in the book of Acts. We never see that in a sermon. You're going to go to heaven. That's what the goal is. We always see the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead and the hope of the life to come and the hope of the new age when it's brought in in its fullness. See, there's a big difference of your hope. Yeah, you know, we, we could say, oh, who, who cares? You know, it's just, as long as I'm with Jesus, I'm okay. And that's fine if you want to have that. That's great if you're, if you're satisfied with that. But for me, that's like, it's almost like I, uh, the analogy I like to use is, is like if you've been married for 50 years and you celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary, okay, or 20th wedding anniversary, it's the wedding that you focus on. You don't focus on the engagement. You don't, very rarely do you have uh, a couple that's been married 20 years and instead of celebrating their wedding anniversary, they celebrate their day, they, the day they were engaged. No, they talk about it. They, it's a passing. In passing, but the real, real thing is the wedding, Right? Well, the wedding is like the resurrection. That's when we are going to be completely wedded with Christ in his presence. When we die, we'll be present with the Lord. The Bible says that's very clearly. But it's, that's only a shadow of what we're going to be when our bodies are resurrected on a renewed heaven and earth with the presence of God everywhere in a physical, it's not a discontinuity. It's not this platonic, going up into the clouds, disembodied spirits floating around, playing harps, and everything's great. That's not what it is. We don't see that in the scripture. What we do see in the scripture is a body coming back to life. That's what the word resurrection means. Resurrection doesn't mean a ghost. Resurrection means a dead human physical body that has completely expired, that now comes back to life fully. And that's important to know because we can get caught up, overly caught up, I should say, in the heaven aspect of the scriptures. And it's very, it's very little is heaven mentioned as our ultimate destination. If I don't think it's men- mentioned at all, in my opinion. Some people may, certain scriptures. But uh, if you want to say heaven, meaning new heavens and new earth and resurrection, okay, we can call that heaven because it's going to be heavenly. It's going to be great. But don't miss the resurrection because that's our hope. Think about living right now in this world. Think about where you're sitting right now and take every consequence in your life right now, everything that sin has caused wrong in your life right now. Think about it. Think of your mind. Think of how wacky your mind is the stupid, ridiculous, wicked thoughts that you think. Think of the pain that you have, physical pain. Think of the threat of death. 
the pending doom of disease, ailments. You guys don't know it yet, but when you hit 40, your body starts to change. Okay, you're not going to be able to take a hit in football and get up from it right away. You know, your body ages, you get older, you get more problems, all that stuff. We're all worried about that. We all think about that. Maybe you're not worried, anxious, but it's like, imagine that all gone. With an, with an extreme, amazing purpose. With the foreknowledge of everything that happened on this side of the resurrection is used and built for that side of the resurrection. You see, Paul is preaching the cross, but he's also preaching the resurrection in context of the promise made to the fathers that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. That's the ultimate promise, the whole entire world. And that's not necessarily the world that we're living in. It's the shadow of the world that we're going to come into, that ultimate, ultimate um, temple, as you could say, of God, where he's going to be present with his image bearers fully glorified in that temple. So any questions on that? I know I just... I went on a little bit of a tangent. You good, Nat? I just like to see her laugh. You good, Dave? All right. Rebecca, everything's good? I didn't mess up? All right. Rebecca usually calls me out. So. so now we have another really important part of the gospel message. Because, you see, none of this could happen. Resurrection can't happen. You can't come out of bondage without this next topic I'm going to talk about. You can't be right with God without this next thing. So Paul goes right to this in 38. He goes, therefore, let it known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law. I, I messed my cadence up there. Freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And then he goes on to warn them. But you see, what's so unique about forgiveness of sins? See, a lot of times when we say forgiveness of sins, we just think of my personal sins being forgiven. And that's true. We, when God... When you sin against God and you come to God in Christ and you confess your sin to God, which means you agree with God on that sin, you're forgiven. But Jesus accomplished forgiveness of sins. He accomplished this. When with this, when you see that, you, when you see it says here, through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. He's basically saying, see, you could not come out of exile as a Jewish person's thinking now, the backdrop, until God is, absolves the sins that you've committed against him. We're still under the punishment of God. That's what the average Israelite felt when they were waiting for Christ. Because, yes, they were free. They came out of the exile. They rebuilt the temple but everything that was going on was sort of a sham. 
like their king, King Herod, he really wasn't the king that was supposed to come. The Romans were still over them saying, yes, you can be Jewish and you can do all your thing, but keep it under wraps. You get all these limitations. That's why all the zealots raised up and all this other stuff. And so they're living under the cloud going, when is God going to give us the grace and give us that freedom that he gave us like he did in Egypt and deliver us into the promised land? When's he going to do that again? Well, forgiveness of sins had to happen in order for that to happen. In order for Israel to be freed. So the language for them of coming out of exile, their shorthand is forgiveness of sins. They're almost two, same, one of the same thing. You couldn't come out of exile under God's judgment until you're forgiven. And once you're forgiven, it goes to say, now you are free. Now the kingdom can be it can be launched out. And that's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive your others their sins, your heavenly father's not going to forgive you your sins. That was always confusing to me because I'm like, this seems very like, uh, I don't know, like an ultimatum here. Like it just seems like conditional. I thought you loved me, God. You know, Jesus isn't saying, well, <clears throat> come to me now to, because you did something wrong. Are you coming to me for, you're confessing it to me? Okay, I'm not forgiving you until you forgive John. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that now that the kingdom of God is launched, and I always say that if the kingdom of God had a name other than the kingdom of God, it would be called forgiveness land. Because every person in there has been forgiven. And as a kingdom person, as a sermon on the mount living person, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Here's how to live in the king, as a kingdom person, right? You can't live with unforgiveness. It's just, you're, you're not going to be able to come into the, you're, you're, you've disqualified yourself of being in, in the kingdom. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's not forgiving processes and there's not emotions we deal with and there's not, I'm not trying to say that. I'm talking big, broad strokes here. So forgiveness of sins equals New age equals kingdom launched equals freed from exile equals God did what he did back in Egypt. It's all the same thing to them. They're not necessarily going, oh man, my personal sins are now going to be forgiven and I can get to heaven. They're not thinking that. They're thinking to themselves, wow, Israel is now free. And then we got you're also freed from all the things that you couldn't be freed from through the law of Moses. See, if he was just talking about sins being forgiven, personal sins, he wouldn't have said that. Because for being freed from all the things you couldn't be freed from through the law of Moses is this. Yeah, I need to go to the temple this week and I need to make my sacrifices. I need to go to Jerusalem three times a year and I need to be a law Torah-abiding Jew. And by doing that, I know that God is going to overlook my sin or keep me in the covenant. That's really what it was about. If you didn't follow the law, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, now your, your sins are forgiven. No, it's, you're, you're not identifying as, a, as an Israelite anymore. You're outside the covenant if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that was the 
That was the scarlet letter. It wasn't sinning. That was bad. Sinning against God, having the bar. But as a Jewish person and as an Israelite, you had to follow the Torah. When it says the law of Moses, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the sacrificial law. He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about the judicial. He's talking about the moral. He's talking about all the Torah. So if you followed all of that, that was good. You were still identified as a person of God, but guess what? You weren't. You were not absolved. Your sins were not completely wiped away. The Bible in Romans 4, it says that it was a forbearance. You know what a forbearance is, right? It's, a, it's like if you're late on your car payment and you call them on the phone and say, I can't make my car payment. Can you give me a forbearance? What do they do? <laughs> right, most banks, now they'll say no. But if they say yes, they'll take that payment that you missed and they'll put it on the back of your loan and you can pay for it later. You'll add another month to it. And that's what Jesus, that's what God did through the Old Testament. None of the sins were absolved. They couldn't have been. The blood of, of, of goats and rams and, and, and sheep, that does not do anything. That just is a temporary covering. That's just a temporary covering and pointing to the ultimate blood sacrifice of Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. So the Jewish people knew they could never be freed. They were in bondage. They had guilt. They weren't able to be completely 100% cleansed. But the blood of Jesus can not only do that, doesn't, o- doesn't only offer forgiveness, but it completely takes it to the next level and does even what the law of Moses couldn't do. And that's absolve, your, absolve that sin permanently. <clears throat> and so after this, Paul starts to warn them. I mean, this is a pretty, pretty bold warning. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers. And marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And that's how he ended. Don't be a scoffer. Don't be a, like, ah, this is a bunch of, ah, we don't want to hear this. And they all wanted to hear it. They all came back the next week, and they were all there waiting. <clears throat> After that synagogue meeting broke up, people started following Paul and Barnabas. And, they were, and they, Paul was urging them to, to stay in the grace of God. And then after that, we see the persecution. They start raising people up. Everyone from the whole town the following week, right? Imagine, you know, Chris preaching his message last week. And this week, the whole entire town of Freehold comes to the faith of the evangelical church, right? You're in a little tiny synagogue with maybe 50 people. But the next week, you got the whole town. And the Jewish people go, wait a second. No, we ain't letting this happen. They start contradicting things spoken by Paul. And, and Paul and Barnabas speak boldly against them and say, we're turning to the Gentiles. Chapter 13 is the big Gentile movement. It's the big movement of taking that gospel out of Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And, w- and again, they don't end there like, oh, man, we're persecuted. This is terrible. This is crazy. I can't believe we're getting this response. Nope, when the Gentiles heard, they began rejoicing, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. 
And the word of the Lord was spread through the whole region. And you look up the word eternal life. In the Greek, it means life unto the age to come. It doesn't mean unending life, although it is unending life. The emphasis is on the new age. And so that's another thing I want you to start to look at and start to uh, process. And again, some women started to, uh, of prominence, started to persecute them. And like, how do I say almost every chapter of the book of Acts ends? In victory. Regardless of what physically happens, verse 52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you have persecution, and out of that comes joy and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, is that that late? Wow. I thought it was like 20 after. So I I could take two questions. (laughs) Does anybody have any questions before we close? Good? Everybody's good? All right. Mr. Chris, would you like to close us in prayer? Sure.